We will be in uh, Genesis uh, 6 is where we're going to start. I think we're going to do like 6, 7, 8, 9. We're going to do a whole bunch um, here today, and we're going to do it in 30 minutes or less. So uh, this is going to go quickly. I've actually, uh, it would be helpful if you follow along uh, with me as we, uh, as, as we go through this. We'll start in, in verse uh, 9 of chapter 6. Uh, but I want to kind of paint the picture here uh, real quickly. Uh, in the book of Genesis, we're, we're, we're understanding uh, that, that, that the Holy Spirit inspired uh, Moses to write uh, the book of Genesis here. And so he's given us this account of creation. You know, obviously Moses wasn't there, so he's telling us this story of what is going on in creation. And now, there's a lot of times that... Um, uh, that, that, that people want to read Genesis as a science book and, and, and have debates on there, or as a, uh, a philosophy book and have debates there. But one thing that we do know of Genesis is that it is literature written by Moses. And so we're trying to hear what Moses is saying to us. And it's funny because Moses actually isn't interacting with things like evolution, which came <laughs> thousands of years after him. I isn't interacting with maybe this idea of, of asteroids or whatever it would be. He's not interacting uh, maybe slightly here with the Epic of Gilgamesh, a flood story from, from ancient times. But he's writing to us on his terms. He's writing to us a story. He's, he's, he's retelling this history in a way that we should listen. And so we want to listen to him. What we've heard is that God created man in his image. He created him with this, with this work. He blessed this work. He said, you and your job, I'm going to resource you so that the world can see who I am, so that they can see my glory, the way that you work the way that you live, the way that you relate to each other and creation around you is going to show the world who I am. And this is what he is equipping people to do. And we find with Adam, with Eve, they turn. We find with Cain that this question, who will crush the serpent? Who will be this promised one? Uh, Cain is not that. We see that with uh, then his great-grandson Lamech, uh, Cain's great-grandson, Lamech, that, that he then institutionalizes this way of sin. And now we're going to read that the world is very corrupt. And so we have this, this liturgy, we have these questions coming about. Who will stop this sin? Maybe the question that I want to ask, uh, that, that as readers we should be asking in Genesis, but maybe we've been asking just uh, from our own life and experience is, does the presence of sin mean that God doesn't exist? Does it, uh, maybe the way the literature unpacks it is this idea of, can God stop the spread of sin? Like, is sin more powerful than him? Because if you're like me and you're reading through the book of Genesis from start to finish, and, 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 you, and you come to this point in chapter 6, and all you have read is 1 through 5, there's a big problem here. Sin seems like sin is winning because it continues to grow and God continues to be quiet. And we have to ask this question, what's going on? Well, if you've asked this question, if this is a question that you wonder Oh, you're in good company. I asked this question. Uh, I, I think I have more answers than, than, than I give, uh, than, than I'm letting on to. But there are many more faithful people that have this question. Uh, we, we went over the book of uh, Habakkuk. There's a prophet who actually says to the Lord, Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you at wrong Destruction and violence are ever before me, and strife and contention arise. So the law, is it paralyzed? And justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous, and so justice goes forth perverted. 
One of God's own prophets asked the question that maybe the reader here is asking, what's up, God? Are you going to do anything? When will you act? In 2 Peter, Peter says that there are some people that will come into the church and they'll ask this question, and I'll quote it here. Uh, 2 Peter 3, 4 says, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, this would be Moses, this would be uh, Abraham, Noah, ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. It seems like Christians believe something. We believe in, in, in a crucified and resurrected Christ. But no matter how much we believe that, it seems like the world goes on chugging along sinful and unchanging. Does it matter? What are we supposed to do? So I'm going to ask some of these questions. I've already thrown out a whole bunch of weighty questions here. I'm going to ask some questions, maybe as we read through the book of Genesis, to kind of, for two reasons. Because I think the questions are there, and they're questions we have. The other one is maybe to teach us a little bit of how to read the Bible. We should interact with the Bible and not just say, oh, this is some lifeless, you know, holy scripture that we read. We're to interact with this. And so I kind of want to encourage you to ask some of these questions as you read the book of Genesis. So with that huge setup, we're going to ask this question. What do we do with sin and how do we live faithfully in the midst of the wait, of the wait for it all to resolve? So we have to ask the first question, will it resolve? Will God stop the spread of sin? Here we go. Verse 9 is where we'll start. And these are the generations of Noah. I made it that far. Uh, so these are the generations of Noah. Mark this phrase, and remember, this is one of the ten structural markers for the book of Genesis. These are the generations. This phrase is repeated a lot uh, in Hebrew. It's uh, the word toledot, which means what became of. What be this is what became of Noah. This is the third one we've had. We've seen this is what became of the heavens and the earth. This is back in chapter 2, verse 4. And what did become of the heavens and the earth? Adam and Eve. And they sinned. Okay, that didn't go so well. Uh, so then the second time we hear this, Toledot, Adam. This is what became of Adam then in chapter 5. And what happens? Cain kills his brother, and then Lamech institutionalizes violence. Okay, this is not going well. So what became of Noah? Let's hope this gets better. We do have a little clue here. The word Noah means rest, and he was named rest because this is where God's rest will come from. We've been told this in the text there. So this could turn well. But what will become of Noah? Now we can get on to uh, the next verse here. Noah was righteous. He was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Okay, this is a positive turn. And he walked with God like Adam. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, while Noah was righteous, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth." Now let's pause here. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. This is a huge departure from where we started. In chapter 1, what do, we, what do we read? And God saw, and it was good. Something terrible has gone awry. So the rising tension is here. This is not the same. 
This is not going the way we thought it would. Verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through men. Now, I want to pause there. I, I, I skip something here. The question we ask, will God stop the spread of sin? It's, it's moving, it's moving, it's moving. Will God stop the spread of sin? I feel like we ask that question in different ways in our own lives, and it, it kind of boils down. So however you ask that question, um, maybe we don't ask it in the way of like directly asking God. Maybe we ask it in the question of, why do good people die? Why did this guy have to die? Why did this guy have to die? Why cancer? Why divorce? Why do I get fired? Why unemployment? These are things that come up that, that show us that something's not right here. I look around and I don't see that this is good. So my life isn't stacking up. This is what's happening here. Now, these aren't people that were just like fictitious story characters for us to think about. This is actually a, a real thing. This is us in our real life. We think like them. We are very much like them. And the question we ask, but will God stop this? And the, two, the twofold question we're asking really is, can he? Is God powerful enough to do this? And sometimes we turn this one into an accusation and we say, okay, so we believe that he is. Conceptually, a God could do this. But does he want to? Does he want to change this? Is he a loving God? Or is he the angry ogre in the sky? Or is he maybe a better one here with the flood? Seems like God sometimes is, is maybe that kid, that's unruly kid with a magnifying glass, and he's just burning the ants, us, just randomly. Which one are we going to take? I feel like we ask those questions. I know I ask questions similar to that. Maybe not that intense. But I ask those kind of questions. What, what do we do? Is this, are you just randomly punishing me for no good? What is the purpose of this? Will God stop the spread of sin? Now we've read this, verse 13. And Noah, God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Well, there's our answer. Yes, God will stop the spread of sin. But then we keep reading. He said, Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Now I'm going to skip the details, jump to verse 17. For behold, this is the reason why he says build an ark. Before, behold, a flood of waters, uh, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven, and everything that is on the earth shall die. This sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul when he says the wages of sin is death. And then we kind of make this turn here, and he says, but the gift of God is life. Verse 18 kind of moves us that direction. Verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife, your sons' wives with you, and of every living thing of all flesh, and you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you, male and female, according to their kind, to keep them alive. Some will be saved. Some will be kept alive in this. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up, and it shall serve as food for you. Will God stop the spread of sin? Yes. What is his decision here? It's not a Band-Aid patch here, and he says, okay, we're just going to say, let's move on. Let's do something. He says, we need to do something twofold. We need to deal with the sin that's here. This is a, 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 a retributive, you know, justice, a punishment. A wrong has happened, and we need to deal with that wrong. 
And see, God isn't just choosy. This is saying, I don't like what you guys are doing right now. This is not my plan. This is out of my control. This is whatever. I just need to do something drastic to make this all stop. God's completely in control here. But something else that God also is, is he is holy. This is what we've known from the beginning. He is holy. And he says, when you live in my presence, there is a holiness here. You're going to reflect my image and my holiness here. And my holiness has certain ways of being. There's an obedience to me. There is a goodness. There is a morality that's here, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is gone here, and you now have had this choice over and over again to take the way of Cain or to take a better way. And it looks like what we can tell is that violence has just been going up and up and up. And maybe it's not direct violence. Maybe it's just interrelational violence. There is something going on on this earth that it is corrupt and it needs to be dealt with. It is not reflecting the holiness of God. And it is by the choice of man. That's the big one. It is by the choice of man that it is this way. But there's also a restorative punishment that happens here, a restorative justice, because he says, it's, we're going to take care of the sin, but we're also going to make a way for this to be taken care of once for all. So we're already seeing this. I will make a covenant with you, and part of it will be in this ark, but we'll get there. Will God stop the spread of sin? I think maybe the big point that I would want to just land it here with us is we should ask these kind of questions. Like if you've asked this question, you are actually on a journey of faith. It's okay to wonder why. It's not okay to ask God a whole bunch of questions and then not stick around and listen for the answer. I find that I try to reason, I try to vent, I try to, I just call someone up and say, hey, I want to vent. I've did this in the last couple of weeks. I just got to vent. The world is broken. My situation is awful. Can I call you? And then I call someone else because it's not satisfying. God, here's my problem. Blah, blah, blah. Then I call someone else. Here's my problem. And then the thing whispers in my ear. And because I believe in the Spirit, I know that the Spirit is nudging me. And the Spirit says, you should pray. And so then I call the next person. And I'm like, this problem is, will he stop the spread of sin in my life right now? This is a terrible situation amazing. I call my mom finally because she's just going to listen to whatever I have to say, right? And she says, yeah, I'm just going to pray about it. I don't, I, I got nothing. And that was all I needed. I pray, and it was amazing. You open this, open the Word, and because I believe that the Spirit actually does direct us, directs me exactly to the answer, and says, let it go. This is not this level of importance. You are dealing with something way bigger are way smaller than what I'm actually asking you to do. Just calm down. Calm down. Maybe God is giving you a calm down moment. Maybe you are not experiencing the full-blown corruption of the world spread of sin. Maybe you're just being a little emotional. Maybe this is God's punishment on you. Maybe this is a discipline or season of discipline in your life. And maybe... This is the spread of sin, and we need to rightly turn to God in lament and say, God, this is not how it's supposed to be. I think we need to measure our complaints and our questions to God a little better than just saying, this is all terrible, wipe it away. 
So I want to go here a little bit more because the, 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 the literature is taking us here. The way that, this, that Moses writes this flows in, in an incredible direction because he says, he says to uh, Noah, he says, I'm going to wipe this out. I'm going to blot this out. So build an ark. That's crazy. Uh, and, uh, and, and then load everybody up in it because I'm going to send a flood, right? That's where we're at. This is Noah. Now we're finally getting to the flood here, right? So then the question I, I, I ask is maybe our, our second point. The first First point is the question, will God stop the spread of sin? And the answer is yes, through judgment of the flood and through the promised covenant. Those are the two ways in which he will stop the spread of sin. Uh, will, point two, will mankind obey? So I, I think in the story, we want to ask the question, will Noah believe and obey? But I think Noah's plot in life is similar to our plot in life. Will we obey when God actually tells us what the answer is? And so we get to this point. Will Noah obey? What if Noah says no? I mean, seriously, this is, this is how we get the tension, the climax in the story. We're at this point where God says, go do this. And I always just assume, because I've been told all the time, there's Noah's Ark. That's the story that we hear, right? Noah's Ark. Um, now, I think the story is about what did Noah do? Uh, Noah's decision, maybe, is maybe the story. What if Noah says no? Like, seriously. I guess, I mean, it's super awkward. There's no one righteous on earth. Do we just restart the whole thing? This isn't a complete restart. Noah's there. He's righteous. He listens. What if Noah says, let me pray about this. What if Noah says, that seems excessive, Lord. Can we talk a little bit more about our options? Or maybe he says, you know, people are going to think that you're a jerk if you do this. I feel like those are things that Noah could have said. But we always have to be mindful to how the author is writing and what does Moses tell us here. Literally the next verse, Noah doesn't hesitate. Noah doesn't digress. Noah doesn't do any of these things. God speaks judgment and salvation and covenant, and he immediately responds. Verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. I feel convicted. He just does it. This is an insane plan, and then Noah just does this. He did all that God commanded him. So the question, will Noah believe and obey? Yes, without hesitation. And, and, and what's interesting is that Noah's immediate response is repeated several times. This is a big part of chapter 7 of Genesis. Genesis 7, 5. Uh, if, you, if you're a note-taker, take, or, or underline this or whatever in your Bible. Genesis 7, 5. 7.9 and 7.16 all say the exact same thing. And then Noah did everything that God told him to do. The amazing part is that Noah, like Abel, is one of our voiceless characters. Like he doesn't talk this entire time. He doesn't ask these questions. He doesn't muddle. We're not, we're not interested. We're not supposed to be interested in what was Noah thinking at this time. We are reading, though, that Noah did stuff that God told him to do. And so I have to ask this question, why don't I do stuff like Noah did? <laughs> I think the answer is reality. Noah actually saw reality in a way that I don't see reality. I had a professor one time say uh, that he used to go to a... Um, he used to go to uh, campuses. He, he'd give a, like a three-part talk to campuses around the country. Uh, and so his first session was, um, what is it? Uh, you are a sinner. The second talk is, 
Christ is the Savior, and the third talk is, and here's how we live as Christians. He said after years of doing this and the question and answer and all of that, he, then, he, he had to shift what he was, what he was speaking, and so he, he switched it. So the first session was um, sin is real because people just weren't understanding. They're like, oh, yeah, I get this. Sin, sin, sin's a big deal, but I don't have sin. So sin is real. You are a sinner, and Christ is a Savior. We'll get to how to live as a Christian, but we really got to get that. I feel like in my conversations with, with a lot of people, in my reading of books, in my understanding and observation of culture, that we may be shifting that one more time here. It seems like we're so digital. We're so in, a, in, a, in our phones and on our, on our screens and in our, in, in, our, in our video games that I almost wonder if the first session has to be now, reality is real. Like we are actually here together. Like there's a real thing here. When I say something offensive, like that actually sticks. That actually like does something to someone. When I read these words, they're actually real. When God says the world is corrupt, he's not thinking maybe this is corrupt. This isn't a way of Moses saying, and here, let me paint a picture of a bad world and how we clean it. The world is actually corrupt because the world did not listen to God. Like that is real history that we find in a real archaeological text that we have assessed over centuries, and it is real. Sometimes we get to the things of God and we think, yeah, that's a little spiritual. That's too spiritual. We have a very naturalistic approach to our text, and we, and we want it to answer the questions we might be asking because my opinion is more real than reality. This is real. The judgment of God is real. That's really what, what the flood is, is narrating for us, is bringing up to us. And Noah can respond rightly because he gets it. This is real. He was righteous. He understood that we're not playing around here. We're not just talking about spiritual things here. We're talking about our life forever. Here's the interesting thing. Like, this has been hard for me to, like, put this in a sermon outline because the narrative flows so strange in this one. There's a climax. There's a breaking point that happens uh, time and time again. Will God deal with sin? But as soon as we get to this question of will God deal with sin, the next verse, like, you don't get, you don't get a ride the, 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 the high very long. You don't get a ride the tension very long. It, it amounts, will God answer this? And then immediately next verse, and then God decided he would deal with it. And then he dealt with it this way. And then you get to this rise. Will, will uh, Noah, will he respond? Will he obey? And then immediately the next verse, and if it's formatted like mine, it's still the same part of that paragraph because it is the same idea. Will he, will he respond? And then immediately the next verse, yes, of course he'll respond. We're going to get another one of those when we shut up the doors of the flood. Is he actually going to do it? I think that's our next question. Is, is this really going to happen? Is this flood going to happen? Why is Moses smoothing the narrative here? Why, isn't he let the why doesn't he let the climax hang? Why doesn't he play that? I feel like this, this is a great story. If I'm going to make a movie, and I've seen a movie on this in the last few years, they've really hit on these points. Make it sensational. I think we make it sensational. It's a big deal. It's a very important text. It's a huge thing in history. But the narrative, the story isn't written that way because it's communicating to us, if you really believe in what reality is, if 
you really believe in how God works and who he is, you're just going to do this stuff. And that's where Noah's at. Noah isn't this superhero. He's just a guy that understands, yeah, God's holy, and he demands justice. He's going to do something about it. And apparently, it's going to be through a flood. And then he just does. That's humbling to me. I want something more sensational than that. But do I? Because I, I find that oftentimes I also go the other direction. I don't actually believe that God's going to do this. I don't believe the miracle stuff happens. Why does our skin heal? We tell our kids because our skin's amazing. That's what we tell our kids at our house. I don't know. Maybe it's because God does miracles like that. Why do people get healed on bigger things than just a cut? Maybe it's not because of the medicine work. Maybe God is doing something miraculous there. And I know that that's hard because I'm right there with you. That's hard for me to think. Why do marriages get back together? Is it because people finally understood that they needed to reconcile and the commitment level needed to be up? Or maybe God just miraculously changed their hearts and love of Christ was back there. I've seen it. I've had people come in to ask for counseling and they come back the next week with something so far off topic from what we were talking about. But the answer is reconciliation. Maybe we need to lean into the fact that God works in reality in miraculous ways. Because I can't explain how this flood works. I mean, they explain right here. But the details of it, I don't know if they're important. The meaning of it is God is holy and he works out his plan unwaveringly. He is just, but he is merciful. Go make a boat. Follow me. Believe in me. I am faithful. I keep my promises. And Noah says, yeah, okay. Oh, if we could be a people like that. Back to the text. Uh, chapter 7, verse 7. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his, uh, and his wife and his sons, uh, sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. And then I'll summarize it. And then they took the animals and the food into the ark. So there they are, and they shut it up. Later on, we'll hear, and God shut the doors for them, uh, and they sit there. So here's our last climactic, maybe not so climactic, because I totally killed that uh, aspect. The question we ask, point three, Will God's promised judgment come? We made all this deal about this boat that I guess is like the size of a, a football field. All these animals in it. Is he going to do it? I feel like that's the thing. Is he going to do it? I'm going to start making this turn here because there's another thing that happens. We, we see that God, God's going to promise and say, I'm never going to do this again. But he's going to do it a very similar way. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's going to take another, I don't know, uh, another thing made of wood. It's not an ark, it's a cross. And he's going to put a guy up there, and the same questions are going to be asked. Like, is he going to do this? I thought he was going to do this. Jesus is hanging on the cross, just as Noah is in the ark, and the question is, is the wrath of God coming? Because it seems like this is silly. But even in the story of Noah, we see that it's not the case. 
Because we read here uh, in, in verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 7, And Noah and his sons, they went into the ark. But the previous verse, Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. So we've already, the spoiler alert, the waters, we already know they're coming. So it's not really a climax. I've kind of made that one. And he says, and they loaded everybody up. And then verse, uh, verse 10, And after seven days, the waters and the flood came upon the earth. After seven days, the waters came upon the earth. They waited for a week. I would have gone into that if I were writing this. And then they sat there for a week, every day looking out the window and saying, is he going to do it? But it's not written that way. And then, yeah, seven days passed, and God did what he was going to do. Totally normal. God is going to judge his people. Why would we ask that question? I ask the question because I don't believe God's going to do it sometimes. Will God... Will God's promised judgment come? And we shouldn't be surprised. God is faithful to his word. God always keeps his promises. So then we make this turn here. So the floods come, and we, and we read in, uh, what is it, verse 23. And then he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. They, uh, they were blotted out from the earth. Moses is teaching uh, some of the nature of God's judgment. He says, uh, he says that always there's this, there's this aspect of man is sinful, the creation, the creatures, the whatever, the, the, the plants and animals, all of those, they did nothing wrong. But the world was corrupt because man was sinful. God has this way of always deflecting this. In the garden, it says, you have sinned against me, but I'm going to curse the ground. God is always doing this thing where we sin and he just takes that punishment and puts it somewhere else. Why the flood? Why didn't he just like send a plague and kill all the people? The whole world suffers when the one who is told to do the right thing doesn't do the right thing. That's, that's how it works. Our, sprin set, or our, our sin spreads. If you are in a role where God has said, I have placed you, I have called you, your vocation is to work in this and do good for my, my will. If you are a parent for the glory of God, if you are a spouse for the glory of God, and you're not doing your job, people are going to get hurt. It's not to guilt trip you in doing that. It's to raise you up and say, we've we got to be doing what we're doing. God is in a way of taking that and deflecting it to others. And I want to see that that is, is not so much to a scare tactic of God that everybody else, but it's more his grace. It's really, it's his mercy. Because what does he do? He blots them out. Here it was so corrupt that God, is, God has seen that no one is choosing right except Noah. The move here, from all the flesh passively dying to an act of God, the words here are blotted out is significant. This phrase blotting out means to wipe or remove clean. I'm just going to wipe it clean. Let me ask this question. So this is it. It's done, right? God has dealt with it. What do we do now? What do we do now from this? Genesis 8, verse 1. God remembered Noah and all the beasts of the livestock that were, that were uh, with him in the ark. God made the wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. This is very similar to the very beginning of the Bible. When the Spirit was hovering over the waters, there is a recreation happening. 
The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. Verse 13, uh, And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. Verse 15, Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, be fruitful and multiply on the earth. He says, I've saved you. Go do what I told you to do. I don't need to give you a whole lot of new instructions. What I told you before was good. Go and do that. And then Noah's reaction is not simply, his first reaction is not to go and be fruitful and multiply. They bring everybody out. But in 820, Chapter 8, verse 20, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. Out of obedience to God's justice and God's wrath and God's holiness, Noah, without hesitation, says, This is reality. I'm going to go build an ark. But out of, out of Noah's understanding and experience of the reality of God's salvation, he goes and builds an altar. These people come out of the ark worshiping. Isn't that our experience? Why do we worship God? Why do we hang the cross in our building? Because we remember it marks our salvation. And that fosters our worship. But God does something more here. He says, I will never again curse the ground. Neither will I strike down every living creature as I have done. I will never do this again. I will never punish the earth for what you're doing. Your sins must be dealt with another way. Now, I just want to invite you to consider some of these, some of these ways in which, uh, in which God upholds his, uh, his promise here. God promises judgment on sin. God shows us this here, and he says, I promise to do this differently in the future. He gives us the rainbow. Jesus comes along. He's a righteous man. He obeys God without hesitation. He even does so uh, what could be against his will. We don't know if Noah's fighting against this, but we know that Jesus says, not my will but yours. He goes without hesitation so that some may be saved from his promised judgment. And Jesus speaks of this the whole time. He says, this is the, this is the thing. My, the judgment, the last day is going to come. He even speaks of Noah and says, it's going to come just as the flood did. No one knew when the full judgment would come. I'm telling you, the ark is being built. I am the better Noah. Safety is with me. And his wrath is coming. So let's not figure out what's going to happen. How does this work? What does this mean of God? How does this work? The reality is here, and the response should be immediate. But it's interesting that what happens when that, when that judgment comes. In Isaiah 25, there's this blotting out that takes place, this promised blotting out that's going to happen when Christ comes. In Isaiah 28, the prophet says, he will swallow up death forever. As Jesus will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away, that is to blot out, same word here, he will blot out the tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all, take away or blot out from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. 
It says, no longer are we going to wonder, when's this going to get better? Will God deal with evil? Will God save people? Will God rescue us? Because Christ will come forward, as the prophet Isaiah says, and he will wipe away our tears. He will blot them out forever because he will take the reproach of his people away forever. He does that in Christ Jesus. So maybe as we just kind of consider this, it's a big story. There's a lot of stuff here. I've, I've only skimmed the surface here. Maybe a couple things that maybe rise for us to consider here today uh, and this week. I think one of the things that rises uh, in this text is this idea of trusting God's words. Trusting them because they are reality. God promises things, I will blot out the earth. God promises things, I will judge sin. God promises things, I will take care of this. And then he does them pretty quickly. He does that uh, ongoingly. He hasn't stopped doing that. Now, one of those, I'm just picking a random text. Romans 6, uh, 23, for the wages of sin is death. So this is something he says is reality. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ. I think I misquoted that earlier on purpose. The free gift of God is not life, but eternal life in Christ Jesus. That's a reality that's there. To trust God's words and promises. Uh, maybe uh, another, another uh, implication for us is to live in the miraculous reality. What's different between those who believe and don't believe, who are unclean and clean, who are wicked or corrupt and righteous? It's their view of reality, that God works in reality in this way. And I think going forward, choose daily the way of Christ. I think Noah had to do this. Adam had to do this. Eve had to do this. Cain and Abel had to do this. They had to choose the right way. So going back to one of the first texts that I'd, uh, that I'd read, uh, Peter says that in the church, people will come forward. They will scoff. They will, they will, they will say, this, this Christian thing isn't so real. And they're going to ask this question, is, when's the coming? When's he coming? His silence points to the fact that he doesn't care or he's not real. And in responding to them, Peter says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. But the Lord is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, Peter rightly fashions this in a different way. The story of the flood helps us to understand the doors of the ark aren't closed. It helps us to understand the extension, the invitation to faith is still there. The invitation to turn is still there. The wrath is still coming. The judgment is real and will come. But there is hope in Christ that comes through repentance and faith. So I don't know. I feel like, I feel like waiting one week for the rain to drop isn't so much for a 600-year-old Noah But I also feel like we can't criticize him too much because it feels like maybe one day and our problems of the day rise above the big question of the whole story of our lives. Maybe not. This is stressful. That is stressful. This is troubling. That is demoralizing. How will you respond to the big one? 
how we respond to the big picture. God is going to judge sin. And what, what is your stance in it? Are you going to get onto the ark? Will you join Christ who climbed on the cross for forgiveness of sins? Will you be saved? And I'll pause there. I feel like the story ends with a bit of dissonance. There's, there's a hope there, but it doesn't resolve. This, is, this pattern's going to repeat again and again and again. We see a glimpse of God's mercy, and then people turn back. Noah, read ahead. He turns pretty quickly after this because he's like you and I. But God then comes back time and time again and says, nope, I still love you. There's still hope. There's still a chance. There's still forgiveness. We'll pause there. We'll pick up the story next week. Let's pray. God, thank you. For Noah, thank you for the flood. Thank you for your justice. Thank you for calling us and inviting us back again and again to your holiness. Thank you for sending Jesus, who is our righteousness. Noah was righteous and seen righteous on his own way. But we know from your word that Christ's righteousness is seen as ours. Please help us to understand this. Please help us to live this. Please help us to trust you. Please help us to come to you with good, honest questions and listen to how you respond to them. Please increase our faith. Please increase our understanding and, 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 uh, and actions in reality. Above all, help us to not worry about the things that don't matter as much. Help us to always be asking the question, do we have faith in Christ? Thank you for giving us this story. Amen.